Welcome to the Swike Podcast, the only podcast that shares the stuff you didn't know you needed to know about jobs, careers, and life. The Swike Podcast, the stuff I wish I knew earlier. And welcome to the Swike Stuff I Wish I Knew Earlier podcast. We are here with one of our new guest hosts, uh, Dustin Haywood, who is also known as the Evil Mog. And uh, we will uh, get into a little bit on his background in, in kind of cybersecurity and um, offensive uh, penetration testing and all that good stuff. Uh, but if, if, if Dustin, you can tell us a little bit more about what you're doing now, and then we'll get into your, your backstory of uh, what you were like as a kid. So Dustin, what are you up to now? So right now I work for a little company called IBM. Um, they're a little group called X-Force Red. X-Force Red is a group of hackers and penetration testers. I lead up the technology group for X-Force Red now. So basically what that means is I run IT operations for hackers, which have a lot of the same uh, IT problems as regular folks, only their issues are a little more unique in cases. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. So uh, if we can go back in time and, and think about, well, what was Dustin like uh, growing up? What was he like as a kid? Maybe your, your earliest, fondest memory, that sort of thing. And then how do we, uh, we'll kind of take the journey of, of then uh, all the way back up to, to present day. So what was uh, Dustin like as a kid? So Dustin as a kid was incredibly awkward. Um, I was a nerd, <laughs> bit of a geek. Um, Oddly enough, they thought I was actually intellectually challenged and special oh, okay. because I couldn't handle um, picking up a pencil back then. Because okay. back then, everyone was trade. It was all based off of how well you could handwrite or print. And sure. because my ha- printing looked like scribbles, effectively, they're like, <laughs> "Oh, hey, this guy can't write. Let's, you know, put him in this you know, remedial education training classes." It really, just, I needed access to a computer or a typewriter at that point because computers weren't really a thing. Uh, mom stole a telex machine from work back in the day so i could only type in uppercase so i was typing all my reports in uppercase to get through and all of a sudden school started becoming easy um oddly enough though i didn't get into it until my mid-20s um i started off actually working manual labor jobs everything from pizza delivery to packing potato chips in a chip plant and that's actually how i got into it i dislocated my shoulder packing potato chips um i was uh, yeah, I couldn't really do anything at the time. I was actually a reservist uh, in the Canadian Forces teaching kids how to fly gliders. And okay. yeah, as due to go join the military to become a comm research operator, but that shoulder dislocation completely wiped out any plans of going with full reg force. So I got put on employee insurance, um, EI. And they had an option for retraining people who needed additional education. So I went to State Polytechnic uh, to do a six-month network tech course, um, basically the first year of their two-year program combined down into six months. Somehow wound up working small IT shops, wound up at IBM briefly for about seven, eight months. Then I decided to go take a job in Afghanistan hooking up comm towers. Um, So I went over to Afghanistan in 2009, 2008, around that time frame, Um, worked in the desert for a good solid year, came back after, you know, some interesting stories for another time. (laughs) And uh, I was looking for another job, found a government owned bank that was looking for IT security folks. So I went and I applied, figuring I had absolutely no experience doing IT security, even though I've been kind of hacking as a kid and as a teenager, you know, messing around and everything else. Um, went in for the interview and I'm like, hey, by the way, I've got no actual IT experience other than like, or no actual IT security experience other than practical, you know, in Afghanistan, you know, getting shot at, hooking up firewalls, like, you know, 
net, running network cables and everything else. Sure. And I was going up against somebody with like a master's degree and like all the school education, but no actual practical experience. And somehow I won out. Um, mm. It just worked out that my particular skill set of being able to hook up firewalls under pressure, um, deal with IT problems when stuff's literally on fire, intrigued the hiring manager. And I got brought on as a security analyst. Uh, from there, I wound up doing a little bit of, you know, online education myself, did the offensive security certified professional, taught myself how to hack. And then I wound up doing hacking for the bank. Cool. Went to a couple of security conferences and thus started this, you know, eight, nine year, year career of you know, information security research that led me to where I am today. That's amazing. So a lot of amazing stories and stuff to unpack. And uh, yeah, for those detailed ones in Afghanistan, that's probably a different episode. But yeah, I'd, l- I'd love if we uh, w- went back earlier. So so mm-hmm. that awkward kid uh, couldn't couldn't write. So so walk us through a little bit about kind of that experience. So for those of us who are uh, a little bit more, let's call it um, academically challenged, and, and not necessarily because uh, we're not smart or anything. It's just that the system sometimes doesn't necessarily allow us to thrive in, in, in that setting. Uh, walk us through a little bit about what's going on in your head. So like, uh, did, did you think you were uh, dumb or, or not? Uh, no, well, I thought I was like, dumb, but it? same token, like I was reading grade 10 books, like sure. left, right, and center. Um, I was doing math in my head that was you know, scaring teachers. It just took about I want to say kindergarten, grade one-ish to convince them that I actually didn't belong in the special ed class and I could actually go back into regular schooling. And then it led to, I think the thing I hated about it back then was because computers weren't, you know, a thing or even typewriters were a thing. My my remedial training was spending four hours trying to grip a pencil handwriting. Well, I Mm -hmm. found out later on as I growing up that one of the common features in autism spectrum people, or uh, back then it was called Asperger's syndrome, is poor hand dexterity. Like to this day, I still can't pick up a soldering iron. So the education in Alberta and BC wasn't really adjusted towards really gifted people that just can't pick up a pet that can't pick up a pencil. So it was frustrating. And then back then, yeah, computer nerds were you know, bullied and picked on heavily in school because they <laughs> yep. weren't exactly cool, right? If you're smart computers, you know, you're liable to have footballs thrown at your head by the football team. So right. high school wasn't exactly the most friendly of times for me. And I honestly wish that we had some level of the like, level support we have today back then, sure. as I probably would have had a far better, uh, you know, youth slash uh, young adulthood, knowing that there was support out there. Like I didn't get diagnosed with the uh, Asperger's until I was 17. Okay. And, and walk us through a little bit about kind of that, that high school experience. So as you mentioned, kind of the stereotypical uh, computer science nerd and, and uh, being picked on by the football players or the sports team or whatever it is there. Uh, but, but you kept at it. So, so what was kind of the evenings uh, like? How did you learn? How did you, you grow? And, and what was kind of in and out of the, the curriculum? And, and how do you kind of like keep that mental fortitude to, uh, to, to just, just get great at what you wanted to do? Well, I spent a lot of time in the library. I mean, when books were like a new OS would come out, like Mac System 7, for example, and here I was 10 or 10 year, 10 or 11 years old, I'd run down to the library, do an interlibrary loan, get one library to ship over the big book on the manual, read it cover to cover and start, <laughs> you know, working with the school computer lab stuff. I eventually got my own PC at, 
12, 13 or so back in the early Pentiums. And then I got the Windows internals books and started pouring through those and started programming. Uh, I actually got banned from computers in grade 10 for the entire school year. But I had to complete computer science 30 on pencil and paper because I was messing with the Novell network at the time and causing some problems for the school sysadmin. So right. I wish back then someone sat me down and you know said, look, there's fun and then there's boring and being banned from the computers or, you know, potential criminal charges later on. I thankfully never got nailed with that. But, you know, those are boring versus being allowed to do cool sysadmin stuff is fun. So I wish they would have had some kind of a guidance back then for the wayward souls like us who just wanted to go play around. That that's awesome. So there, there's always an interest there. It sounds like so. So oh, yeah. where did that come from? Was that kind of a natural like gravitation? Did you have some influences like people around you that also uh, were kind of the, the computer, the, the hacker types? No, it was mostly because I could finally handwrite. Like I could actually uh, type, communicate really fast. I was typing. Okay. 40, 50 words per minute. So it was just a natural place where I could fit in and socialize as opposed to, you know, like we had chat rooms, we had multi-user dungeons for text-based games. We had all those early online communities. Back then it was just a way of communicating that didn't involve, you know, trying to grip a pencil and type because all enough for the handwrite because all the typing works out well for me. Right. And, and if you were to kind of share some of your experiences, so again, kind of like being bullied and picked on for, for the folks that are uh, in, in areas that aren't cool or, or whatever, like what, what sort of guidance or advice might you have for yourself back, back then? Because it seems like that you kind of kept to yourself and you know what, I, I have tons of manuals and things to, to look at, um, but uh, were, were you like immune to those uh, kind of societal uh, pressures and, and, and expectations? Oh, no, or, or I hated, like, like being bullied was one of the worst things out there. And it's just, it gets better, right? I mean, mm. and that's the thing. Everyone goes through that phase, or at least I went through that phase. And it, people kept telling me, hey, when you get into your 20s and enter the adult world, the people who are bullying you will probably be flipping burgers and you'll probably <laughs> be working at some multinational corporation doing something really cool. Sure. Well, I looked back through my yearbook and a bunch of them still are flipping burgers or doing other manual labor jobs. And I am where I am now. So sometime around my early 20s i kind of went to a music festival once and i just learned how to let go i was wound tighter than a drum up until my you know just from the, all the years of going through stuff <laughs> and i learned how to relax i mean yeah met some cool people in college they were all nice and friendly and then i just learned to you know live in the moment a little bit i didn't know something just clicked and and if you go back to that point can you kind of pinpoint what it was or was there a specific moment I, i'm always curious about when like those epiphany type moments or those those, those clicking moments is, is there something that you can actually go back and, and and recognize kind of yeah i mean basically i'd already dislocated my shoulder i'd been kind of off work for a little bit school was about getting ready to start for my second run through school i mean first run through college obviously and i realized hey this is a chance to just readjust how i'm doing things it was a nice sunny day the epiphany just sort of hit. I must have been about 23-ish. Nothing really else was going on. Friends like, hey, you know, come down to the bar. Let's go for a beer. I guarantee you by like the end of the weekend, you'll see things right as rain. And I don't know, just it was a great day and things clicked. Hmm. 
Okay, so it was just one of those kind of serendipitous moments where, where yeah. folks help you. So uh, yeah, I'm, I'm just trying to find out if there's a way for folks to kind of cultivate and grow to that that point. So um, so if, if we kind of walk through high school, I mean, bullying happens, you'll we'll, you'll get through it. And, and like you said, chances are you'll uh, be in a better shape, maybe the boss of someone that, that was picking on you before. Uh, what was the choice for, for school, right? So you mentioned you, you did like kind of second run. How did the first uh, decision get made? And, and like, was that useful or what would you have done differently on, on that side? Um, but but how, how did kind of that, that progression from, from high school to, to college uh, take place? So high school, I wound up going through that same trap a lot of smart people go through in that they get really smart in some classes, then they stop trying and they start skipping classes just uh -oh. because they're <laughs> like, uh oh, this is, you know, not my thing. Um, I wound up failing math 30, math 31, low marks in chem, physics, okay. the whole nine yards. And it cost me a lot of time to get back into college to mm. go regain those classes back. So the only advice I can give to the smart kids out there, just because you're smart and things come easy, the difficulty level will ramp up. And I strongly regret not learning how to work when I was in high school. Okay. And, and what sort of work um, practices would you kind of uh, instill upon yourself if, if young Dustin was actually willing to listen? <laughs> Yeah, if young Dustin was willing to listen, I'd learn how to study. I mean, back then, yeah. I didn't have to study at all. I'd be the kind of person who would skip all the classes, show up late for the exam, finish it in 20 minutes, get 90% of the exam, walk out, and kind of leave. It infuriated my teachers to no end. But I just I didn't like doing the homework because right. it was the same old thing I'd learned in class and class kind of bored me and mm. so I didn't learn the art of sitting through stuff that absolutely bores you to go hammer out and that really stunted me up but even when I got my new job uh, here in my current professional role because when you're not right we're not used to writing reports they mm. become such a chore like mm. learning to love writing or at least get into a groove on writing and get punched through that hey, I've got this massive report due. You know, we have the saying in the industry that the hacking is free. The report's what costs money. <laughs> okay. So I wish I'd learned that art of, you know, I, I've got it down now, but it took a lot of hard hours of practice. Sounds good. So yeah, definitely uh, share the same sentiment where high school was a little bit easier or I guess maybe more relaxed and, and, and doesn't seem to be as much on the line. But then as you go to kind of college university level, the difficulty level does indeed ramp up, right? Where you have to, and, and maybe not even ramp up, but also you have to study in different ways because a lot of high school is kind of rote memorization. It's just all that sort of stuff. But then in, in college university, it's more kind of the application and like different instances and stuff of that so uh walk us through kind of the the college experience so so i, how, I loved college oh, okay loved love love loved college um college is very much everything about being you know fully here, applicable you know here is this go learn it do it i'd already learned most of the prerequisites i was mostly in there for the certification so okay. my first couple of classes i was getting 90 percent 100% in a couple of the Linux classes. I kicked out a Linux one because they hauled in an instructor who started trying to teach Linux. But then he moved on to talking about the Free Software Foundation and ranting about Richard Stallman and the whole, the more about the politics of free software as opposed gotcha. to actually teaching how to use Unix. So I stood up in class and said, hey, are you just teach us how to use Unix or are you going to go <laughs> keep ranting about the philosophy? He's like, you've done this before, haven't you? I'm like, Maybe. So I got kicked out of the class, told to write the exam, got 90% of the exam, and that was my mark for the class. So I got to sit out for two weeks doing nothing. But it's just one of those, 
yeah so college was entertaining um the group work was, took me a little bit to get into learning the teamwork of things i'm glad i learned that bit but you know college was actually some of the funnest times i had i finished my course off extremely quick so and and you talked about uh group work and learning that and getting used to that so so what was the, the process like in, in that right because uh in, in high school you might have a few projects or probably not very many but generally in college university there's a lot more of that so so what was the the process for you to get better at, at, at group work? Yeah, my problem with group work was I wound up doing most of the work myself. I was terrible <laughs> at delegating because yeah. I already had an answer. Um, what finally reset things for me is because I was so good at stuff, we had this final project where we were a mock company responding to an RFP. Okay. Um, so they, they post this RFP, we had to go reply to it. Somehow they made me CEO. So I spent more time doing paperwork than I did actual the tech stuff. Okay. And then people kept you know, yelling at me for not doing all the tech stuff. I'm like, hey, look, here's all your paperwork you guys were doing. You know, I'm reassigning this firewall. I'm going to rede redelegate appropriately. And then the project came forward. But sure. the first couple of days, I was like trying to do all the tech work and the business work at the same time. And it just wasn't working. Sure. So it was kind of identifying that uh, people have different strengths and, and all that. When when you take everything, then, well, a, a lot of the stuff that you're good at naturally uh, doesn't get done. So might as well delegate, give it to other folks. And then, hey, all, all the stuff that you're good at, it becomes uh, kind of a little bit more more natural. So, so you mentioned that you had a, a couple of uh, swings in, in, in college and stuff like, or different sort of certification programs. Um, so what was that process like? And then, and then what was the, the, the process like to get into the, the workforce? So, so you mentioned you, you started in like um, uh, just kind of uh, labor type jobs. But what was that the transition like uh, between kind of your, your, the next program and onwards? Yeah. So during school, what we did was we I did one of those courses where they did like your MCSA, your Linux Plus, your CCNA, um, a few other general IT related certs. Yeah. So I wrote all my um, certification exams while I was still actually going through the courses. I mean, I wrote the Cisco exam while I was still in the middle of Cisco 3 because I'd read the books ahead and <laughs> already got certified by the time we'd had our final exams. So that was good. The MCSA wasn't that bad either. Um, the only one that threw me off is I think I was going right as Vista was coming out. I had to do my MCITP Vista to renew one of my certs one day. That was okay. hard. But we had a, at the end of the program, they had a practicum they put you in. And I actually skipped my practicum. Um, oh, I was okay. sent off to go work at one of those little IT shops doing like desktop imaging or something for one of the big four, you know, consulting, whatever firms. I said, heck with that. I had a decent offer to go work for a little IT company that I went to work for, didn't like. Then I got another offer while I was working at this little IT company to come work for IBM. So okay. it was just, he's already had all the certifications in place. I was basically already qualified. Once I got there, um, I was talking to some folks. We were working on a three, three weeks of days from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m., and then three weeks of nights, 6 p.m. to 6 a.m. Okay. You do like a three days on, four day off, four day on, three day off kind of rotating schedule. Okay. I wound up volunteering to go work the night shifts because we had someone I was working with that just couldn't handle the nights. Awesome okay. as a day person. So I said, look, I'll take all your night shifts. You can take my day shifts. We'll make this whole thing work out. So I was on seven weeks of nights, three weeks of days, okay. which exposed me to all sorts of IT problems. Because okay. oddly enough, even though the change windows are usually open during the day, a lot of them are usually only open during the night. And then working multinational while rotating shifts, I got exposed to a lot of problems. Mm. And I developed an, or an ability to fix 
AAA problems or authentication, authorization, and accounting with like TACAX and RADIUS. So I wound up getting assigned to firewall accounts as well as just routers, which started getting me the security training, which was valuable in the industry. So, you know, the thing, that's something I would definitely do again is volunteering for either extra credit or extra work or different engagements. Because, yeah, as a level one analyst, you'll never touch anything. You won't even get read-write. But the second you get into level two work at night, and you're on changes, they elevate your access pretty quick. And then sure. by volunteering to do things, you wind up getting exposure that you never normally would get. That's awesome. So it uh, sounds like putting up your hand and requesting, even though it's not kind of the most convenient thing to do, because working nights is, is a little different than, than, than most people. Um, what was kind of life like there? Because everybody who might kind of go out in the evening while you're working, right? And everybody's... Yep. You want to go out in the afternoon, but everyone's working. So how, well, how it was actually kind of handy because I was still in my mid twenties. So I could go to, I had a couple of after hours clubs in Calgary. Okay. So I'd go out and party, like we'd get off work. Some of the clubs are still running till 10 AM because they'd get off, you know, they'd run from like a 1 AM till 10 AM routine for the okay. after, after hours. I mean, the problem is they don't serve alcohol, but yeah, the music is great. It's entertaining watching all the sketched out people, you know, partying it, <laughs> you know, you coming out of the bar at you know 10 a.m on a sunday morning where you're just getting out of work and partying for the last four hours it you know made things entertaining so it wasn't that bad per se okay. um i did that for a bit and then i had another opportunity to come across my way contracting so i only stayed on that for about seven to nine months or so ish okay. before i got the offer to go replace every router and switch in every large big box retailer in western canada okay. so i was like hey we got it we're a u.s company we're swapping out all these uh switches we need local contractors here's a decent amount you're driving all across alberta and bc and so i had my wife who was my best friend at the time be my driver while we drove around bc swapping out routers and switches we weren't <laughs> cool. even dating at the time so i hired her off she was off or she was retiring as a massage therapist needed some spare work so i'm like hey i've got this contract let's go run my little crappy company so did that for a bit. And then when that finished, I got the Afghanistan offer and went to Afghanistan. Cool. And, and on the contracting side, was it a pretty easy decision uh, to do that? Like, did you always think about contracting? Because I know some people have uh, a, a challenge when, when going from kind of full time to contract because, well, it, there's no security in there and all that sort of stuff. So, so what was the, the decision or the, the thinking process around that? I mean, I was still living in my parents' basement at the time. So <laughs> if I you know, failed, it like, didn't really matter if I was in between contracts yeah. more in a little bit. I had six months living expenses in my account at all times. So I mean, if I was short, okay, big deal. Yeah. Um, it, so it didn't really factor much in my decision. Nowadays, I'm full-time and I refuse to do contracts. So it's all up to an individual personal preference. Yeah. Sounds good. So it, it sounds like that uh, a lot, lot that helped was a little bit of that, that kind of risk mitigation factors, right? So so you had savings there and, and obviously you could just continue living with your parents. That's not a huge deal, that sort of thing. Um, so that kind of gave you kind of a little bit more of that peace of mind that, hey, if things uh, kind of go um, the wrong way, then, then you can always uh, recover from that. So, so so talk us a little bit to us a little bit about, about Afghanistan. So that offer, like, does it just come out of left field or was there kind of well, like incubation? I've been kind there? of eyeing the local job boards for contracts. And I'd seen okay. this little place by this company come up a couple of times. So I was working as a, de- or as a defense contractor for the group that had the contract to manage the morale, voice, and internet services for the Canadian forces. Okay. So the system was called Global Connect. And basically every time 
soldier or their family called their families back home, it was on this system. Mm-hmm. My, my particular job was I managed Kandahar Airfield as well as the region or as well as all the surrounding uh, forward operating bases. So I had five forward operating bases and a handful of police subservice stations. I had to go out and service. So you either take helicopter or you take ground transport to get out there. You do your repair, make sure everything's functioning. You come on back. Um, I was told, hey, look, you, know, you may not have the satellite experience, but you've got the network experience. We're going to send over a guy who just released from the Canadian Forces. He's the foreman of the Joint Signals Regiment. He'll be your satellite guy and boss on the field. You just do your IT ninja stuff and make sure everything works. And it, you know, it wasn't bad. I mean, it was hot. It was cold. It was rainy. It was the environmental conditions out there were pretty gnarly. I mean, there's this dust. It's almost like moon dust. It gets in everything. So unless okay. you're taking... Uh, it's like this really gritty, like fine sandpaper, like dust that just destroys everything. Oh, no. So you're constantly taking an air compressor to devices. And we had this little cyber cafe out there for people to do some mild gaming and stuff like that. Trying to keep video cards working in Afghanistan heat with this dust was oh. just a nightmare. And then you deal with phone calls, trying to maintain decent voice with 200 milliseconds of jitters. So, and like, let's call it 12, 1300 milliseconds response time. So there's about a second and a half delay between when I say something and when, yeah, my lips move to go along with it and back. So it's like almost talking in walkie talkies. It's like simplex communication. Yep. Um, The isolation was pretty gnarly, but I was home, you know, every three months for two weeks and then fly back out there again. And then when my rotation was done, I mean, that was it. The best thing I ever did in my life and I got a medal out of it. So that's amazing so talk to us a little bit about like kind of that that first uh deployment project or whatever you you call it so were you were you uh scared excited about a bit of both or or some other emotions like i mean i was fairly excited and a bit of scared i mean i had to release from the reserves completely in order to get out there um they didn't want a uh, reservist out that's not actually on the combat mission in country so i had to release from that you make sure everything was all clocked out um my parents were so freaked out it wasn't even funny (laughs) writing my will at 26 or so was a bit weird i'm not gonna lie that was the most bizarre thing and then of course yeah having to sit through the by the way there is no life insurance for this or there's no insurance (laughs) for that and like you know here's all the scary stuff here's your payout in the event you know anything weird happens you know the security training showing up for like nine vaccination shots in one day and then going back like three months later for another full round of vaccinations was kind of bizarre uh, i got sick my first three weeks over there apparently everybody does there's this thing okay. called the kandahar crud where it's just it takes everybody out within the first couple of weeks and then after that you're typically good it's like a nasty flu almost okay but once you get over that it wasn't bad the heat was what killed me i showed up it was cold and rainy actually i flew into dubai first then flew into afghanistan so it was hot then it flew in because it's winter monsoon season in Kandahar. So it was raining so bad my first couple of months. And then the heat, like in the summer, was plus 65 Celsius on the tarmac. Like it okay. was brutal hot. Wow. But nothing beats an ice cappuccino in the middle of the desert. <laughs> we had a Tim Hortons out there. So, okay. A little bit of home uh, out, out there. Yeah, um, exactly. Um, but the weird IT issues you deal with are out there are just, I'm so glad I had some experience doing some field deployments at, you know, like the other big box retailers and you know, dealing with the stuff working in a knock before I went over. But 
yeah, if anything went wrong, you had no support. Like you were the guy who had to sort it out and that was it. And when things break, they break spectacularly out there. Right. Can, can you tell us a story about one of those uh, spectacular breakages that, that really uh, caused some, some grief for you? No, but I can k- give you through an interesting story that we blame, we used, we, we blamed a network outage that happened every single day for about a week okay. on what we thought was electronic warfare jamming, which okay. typically happens. Like they have these jammers that, you know, jam the bombs, do all their things. And so we were thinking that was taking out our satellite. Well, I decided to go take a look outside one day during this outage and it happened to be roughly, let's call it nine, 10 in the morning. And lo and behold, there's this giant ball of plasma in the path of my uh, satellite, the uh, block and all the RF. So really it was just the sun that was stopping us, but we were for weeks on the ticket, blaming it on uh, enemy RF. Solar transit finished. All of a sudden our comms came back online and everyone was happy, but it was the most frustrating couple of weeks we were dealing with. <laughs> Yeah, it sounds like the, the enemy has a, a leg up on you and you realize, oh, it's just Mother Nature and the sun. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Yeah, that was a funny one. Um, I think the coolest thing we did, though, is we discovered we had a bunch of extra satellite bandwidth on our um, download frequencies just due to the way we did our traffic engineering. So we were able to pipe in the Stanley Cup playoffs over oh. satellite into Afghanistan, and that made everyone's day. Yeah, definitely. When when you can kind of normalize things with uh, the entertainment back home, <laughs> that that definitely helps. Exactly. But what, what was the process to to kind of put um, uh, Afghanistan like like on hold and, and be finished with it? Right? Was, was it kind of like the end of the contract, and, and then you just didn't renew that sort of thing, or were there other other uh, factors at play? I mean, there, normally when you go in there, you only go over for a six month contract. I renewed my contract six months in for an extra six months, okay. and then. We had some interesting issues. My convoy, or my last couple of convoys, kept getting bumped. Well, they weren't really bumped per se, but we had issues on route that resulted in a number of folks being rather scared. And so, after a number of incident reports, they're like, "Look, man, you're bad luck. We're going to rotate you home, pay out your contract, <laughs> rotate in somebody else, and call it a day. You've done your time. Enjoy." And I mean, it, I'm glad it ended that way because. You know, there's so many other ways that could have ended sure. and they were really good about it because they like, hey, look, this other company, we've got a program where we find people the placement program to get them jobs after they leave. And so, you know, that's why I was constantly looking on the job boards. It was this placement program. It's like, hey, why don't you apply for security jobs? I'm mm-hmm. like, well, I'm not really a security person. I'm a network guy. They're like, dude, you've done firewalls. You've done like all these things. You are more than qualified. Just because you don't have the title doesn't mean you're not a security person. And that's you know, kind of how I got in the field that way. Nice. So, so tell us a little bit more about kind of the, that detail process. So, so you're now uh, back home because you don't have to go back. And, and did you have something waiting for you or did you have to go through like no, the application? I had to go through a process. Yeah. So yeah, I came home. I had to go talk to the, you know, the job placement or what was the name of job placement? It was employee career counseling and transition assistance kind of program. Mm-hmm. And we sat through, you know, talked through what I was good at, et cetera. I was applying for jobs at the time. Nothing really decent was popping up. And then lo and behold, this position for my last company I was at pops up. And I'm like, you know, let's go apply for this. And, you know, their recruitment process was so slow. It took a month just for me to get the interview and another month Mm -hmm. to find out I even got the job. But you know what? I wasn't really interested in working anyways. I was thoroughly happily retired. And people say, (laughs) no, no you're unemployed. I'm like, well, there's only one difference between unemployed and being retired. 
that's the amount of beer in your fridge. And a very <laughs> wise person once told me that, my father. <laughs> nice. So, so it sounds like that, uh, well, you came out of retirement. <laughs> yeah, I came out of retirement to go into security. And I just said yes to every stretch possibility I was there. And well, I also learned a bunch of things like I dealt with data center fires, data center floods, data center migrations, SAP migrations. Like I was through the thick of virtually everything. By the time I said, all right, I need to calm down and get down to a 40 hour work week again, because those that you know, can wind up do, and those that you know, are doing wind up getting suckered into overtime. And that's just the nature of the beast when you're young, right? That sounds good. So, so then that, that's when you get hired into, into IBM as, as part of... Uh, well, I got, I got hired into ATB first, was oh, what ATB. happened was, right? Yeah, I got hired into ATB, sat there for eight, eight years, and then IBM actually picked me up at a security conference. Hmm. So I got into the security conferences by... I was actually going for my OSCP at the time, and someone was like, hey, there's this conference called DerbyCon down in Louisville, Kentucky. I'm like, DerbyCon? Like, yeah, it's a thousand people. You'll to be perfect for you, right? Rather than this 50,000 or 30,000 DEF CON conference. So I show up and I just, I felt so at home, it wasn't even funny. Like there's just, there's this mentality at DerbyCon that there are no rock stars and anybody there would sit down and show you, hey, here's how we do this or here's how we do that or here's the CTF, come help me out. Like there was none of this ego at this conference and it just grew. Um, and after going there for years, I wound up speaking there, helping run the conference, like helping run their Wi-Fi and other things. And so I became kind of a fixture at this conference. And I was, yeah, at the end of an event after doing Hacker Jeopardy, when I ran into a recruiter for uh, X-Force Red when they were uh, picking people up. And I'm like, hey, I'm looking to go jump out. Um, this is back in like September or so time frame of 2016 and he's like yeah well we're looking to go higher up you know give us a shout when you're ready to jump and then i wound up working well what happened was we fired our blue team manager and i was the red team manager at the time so i wound up doing his job and my job along with doing a full-time analyst role on each side and i was just burnt out i had a stress-induced panic attack during a blue coat migration that felt like a heart attack honestly i woke up in the emergency room and that was my wake-up call that working 90 plus hours a week is not exactly good for you. So I went on stress leave and they kept calling me out during my leave. So I called up IBM's like, hey, look, I need out of here. You guys still hiring? We started the interview process. And then I gave my employer, because I'd been there for so long, two months um, notice that, I'm, hey, I'm out of here. You guys have a whole bunch of stuff to transition. Did my two months piece, got out, yeah, went over to IBM and it's been happy ever since. Sounds good. And, and and you mentioned a little bit about kind of DerbyCon and getting involved. Like, what was the process to get involved? Like, did you just kind of put up your hand and say, hey, I, I just want to speak. I want to network. I want to do all that sort of stuff. Because I didn't even have to put up my hand. I just okay. started doing stuff. I was at the okay. conference and they're like, hey, we need someone to help hook up wireless. I'm like, okay, well, I've got my gear here. What do you guys got for equipment? Went down, started doing configurations. And I started helping run the CTF wireless for stuff because I was there anyways, a couple of days beforehand doing training. So I'm like, yeah, I'll lend a hand here, do whatever else. I get a couple of drink tokens out of it and I'll be happy. And that just led to multiple years I started applying to speak got accepted to speak um, started speaking there every year while I was at it and then just somehow magically I got awarded a uh, what they call a black badge in the industry and that gives you free entry to the conference for life right now I'm just due to my support and then when employers see things like black badges and the fact that you're involved in conferences and the fact that you're helping out yeah it just leads to more opportunities for you and 
for, for sure. I, I think when folks can see that other people value you, right? So with with black badges or whatever sort of uh, notoriety, I think I think that definitely helps. And and when you're constantly around in a picture uh, in the places they are, then people people take notice and, and they want you to, to come work for them as well. So uh, so it sounds like that uh, you're uh, enjoying your time at at, at IBM. And um, I, I I want to ask like the, the nickname. So so you go by Evil Mog and even like your uh, um, LinkedIn doesn't even have Dustin. Well, I, I guess it does, but not the URL part of it. Like, how how did that come into it, and where did the name come from? And and uh, yeah. So it was funny. My company is a, the company I was at before was a government-owned bank, and they didn't want me doing any research under my own name. So I had to do things under a handle. So on, I joined had to join IRC, and my gamer tag for ages was MOG, which is also oddly enough the first glider I ever flew. CG Mog. It's also okay. a Final Fantasy character, and there's a few other things where it's from. Um, but I ran into a guy named Matthew O'Gorman who has the same initials. So we got together and like, hey, you know, I'll let you keep MOG. I'll go with Dr. Mog or Evil Mog or a few of the other variations of Mog that I've kept around for IRC deconfliction purposes. And so I went by that up until about 2015 when in a paper, somebody released my name, my cluster size, the company I was working for, basically everything. And so I had to come out of the shadows and into the light going, yeah, okay, fine. All this stuff was me. And I started <laughs> doing stuff as both my name and my handle. But when I was right. doing talks, all my talks would go, hi, I'm redacted. I do redacted for redacted. I'm here to talk about redacted. <laughs> there you go. So it came from your your uh, original online handle, but then the evil came in because someone else had the name. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> put in a, some sort of qualifier in order to do that. And then it, based on that um, kind of press release, so to speak, then then you, you got outed and, and now you are forever branded as, as the evil mog. So that's, that's yep. awesome. So. And I'm totally cool with it because that was basically my resume when I applied at X-Force Red. They're like, you know, where's your resume? I'm like, tell you what, Google me. And yeah. that was literally the resume. I mean, I had to create one for HR purposes, but the decision to hire was made well before it ever my resume ever hit the desk. Yeah, and that goes to the typical quote: like actions speak louder than words. When you're out there and, and people can can Google you, and then uh, they they find stuff. Well, then that kind of speaks more than uh, whatever bullet points exist on a nice piece of paper or whatever. So I think that's amazing. Exactly. Well, and that's why I tell everyone, hey, if you're trying to get into the industry, do blog posts, even if it's just how I learned something simple that everybody also knows out there. We look for your writing style. We look for things that you're doing. We look for people to get involved in conferences. Those tend to be the doers in the industry that wind up you know, doing great things. For sure. Yeah, and, and I definitely echo that that advice. Whether or not uh, you are the foremost expert, that's not where you're trying to uh, share. It's it's uh, how do you communicate? Can you communicate? It's probably another big thing as, as well. And when you're out there and, and confident enough to be out there, I think that that speaks uh, volumes as well. So, if you were to uh, go back in time and give uh, Dustin some some swipe, so I know we kind of uh, peppered in a couple of them there, but if we were to kind of go back, maybe one or two. Uh, maybe three top uh, pieces of advice that you give yourself, what might those be? The top three things I probably would have done is pay attention to high school, get decent high school marks, save yourself <laughs> a couple of grand in re-education later. Um, <laughs> two, go to school earlier and get oh, the okay. uh, higher level certifications sooner. If I could have skipped the manual labor phase of my life mm -hmm. and all the wear and tear it did in my body and got into security sooner, I totally would have. Um, and number three, buy large amounts of Bitcoin back in 2009 <laughs> <laughs> because I had the chance to buy that stuff when it was 50 cents a piece. And right. I had, 
I mean, it's going to crash one of these years anyway, so I'm not encouraging anybody to ever buy any kind of investments. I'm just going to clarify that now. Yeah. But, you know, if I could have back then, I probably would have. <laughs> yeah, that, that's a bunch of times. There's so many times in that uh, journey where it's like, I should buy some. Now do they? I should buy some. Now do they? I should buy some. And, and lo and behold, obviously, it's one of those things. But to your point, probably now is not the right time to buy. Yeah, now is the worst time to buy. You <laughs> buy low and sell high. Now it's for sky high. You'll, uh, you know, it's only as much as it's only worth what people think it's worth. And one of these days it's going to crash and fall apart. But, you know, had I known then, I may have, uh, I lost a hard drive with 100 bitcoins on it back in the day because oh, no. we were all mining and playing with the CPU stuff. I mean, it's lost no skin off my nose now, but I mean, dang. Yeah, <laughs> that would have been an, an, an earlier retirement, that sort of thing. So exactly. Uh, speaking of that, so what are some future aspirations? What are some of the things that folks can look forward to the evil mod being uh, involved with? Or can you even say? <laughs> I mean, I'm always looking for something new and cool to work into. I and mean, I've done the offensive side of the world. Nowadays, a lot of the hotness is in the SRE work or uh, site reliability engineering okay. is um, what they call it now. And that's basically DevSecOps or running cloud with Kubernetes. Right now, my cloud experience is basically zero other than doing some light breaking into it. A while ago, people thought cloud was the next or would, would have been just a fad, but now with things like serverless computing and multi-cloud being the new way forward, if I was to go back and had to restart school again today, I'd probably become an SRE and do uh, cloud DevSecOps. That, that's amazing. So uh, yeah, it sounds like that there'll be more learning uh, on the horizon for you and uh, who knows what will be upcoming in the next phase of the, uh, the, the story of the evil mob. Well, here's the thing. The learning never stops. I, sure. I don't I want everyone to understand that right now. I mean, I probably spend 100 to 200 hours a year in continuing education just to yeah. keep on top of things. You know, let's look at Windows, for example. You know, when I started, it was Server 2003. Mm -hmm. Server 2012 just dropped yesterday. So mm -hmm. there's a good gap in technology that changes, and it's always going to be evolving. So if you're looking for a career where you're not learning, this is not the one for you. For sure. And, and I, I think that also applies outside of tech as well. So obviously in things like cyber and tech, it, it moves even quicker, but even accountants, I'm sure they have to learn stuff and, and lawyers and all that sort of stuff. There's, there's always uh, new innovations that are happening, um, but obviously some of those take longer to get into the mainstream. But uh, thanks so much, Dustin, for, for sharing your, your insights and uh, yeah. I uh, would love to have you back to kind of do a deeper dive on any one of these topics. There's a lot of things that, that I kind of noted in terms of e even on, on, on the reservist side or, or like uh, more of those stories in, in, in Afghanistan, at least the ones that, that are declassified enough for you to share, uh, that sort of thing. And, and even uh, some of the, the mindset thing, because I find there's a, a great energy with you uh, in terms of like just wanting to learn and kind of that curiosity. So maybe uh, going back and figuring out where that may or may not have uh, come from and, and what you can have done to kind of uh, um, incubate that. So yeah, thanks so much, uh, Dustin, for uh, joining us. And where can folks uh, connect with you if, if you're willing to share or-, or Twitter is the easiest way. Um, if you want to get hold of me on Twitter, it's evil underscore mog because there is apparently an evil without the underscore, but he's got like five <laughs> followers and I've been trying to get him delisted for ages. So evil <laughs> underscore mog on Twitter or hit me up on LinkedIn, either or evil mog on LinkedIn. Um, both of those are the easiest way to get hold of me. That's perfect. So uh, thanks so much, uh, Dustin, for joining us and uh, hopefully we'll have you back on a future episode. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us on the Swike Stuff I Wish I Knew Earlier, the podcast. 
If you like the podcast, please subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you found this podcast. And if you can give us a review, that would be very appreciated. Feel free to contact me on LinkedIn at Luki Danu, L-U-K-I-D-A-N-U, and the same on most social media platforms. And I look forward to hearing from you. Thanks. Bye.